Our sermon text for today is Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 through chapter 11, verse 6. If you would turn there with me. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But if wisdom helps one to succeed, um, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no one knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Though sloth, or through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to, to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, 
for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Thank you, Esther. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes has a great deal to say about wisdom, and that's not surprising because, <clears throat> excuse me, King Solomon is its presumed author, and the Bible tells us, actually God says, he promises to Solomon that he would be wiser than any before him or any after him. Now, we know that Jesus is the exception to that, but Solomon was according to God, the wisest man on earth. And one of the things that we see about wisdom is that wisdom functions like a map. Now, I was thinking about this. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and we would go to Florida and we would have this like giant book and it had maps of every state. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful for a phone now. But, but wisdom is like a map. We don't use a big map, but I use the map on my phone all the time. I'll program in where I'm going, and then I, I put my phone down, and I have this computerized voice that lets me know in, ten, in 1,000 feet, take a right. In 100 feet, merge onto, and it, and it tells me I don't, even, I don't even really have to know all the roads along the way because this map tells me every next step so that I get to the right place. And that's what wisdom is like. When I'm listening to the map, to the, to the phone, I'm thinking, should I turn left or right? Do I take this route or that route? Which is quicker? Which has less traffic? Which road is easier to travel? And just like my map app answers those questions with regards to traveling, wisdom supplies similar answers for living. Often in Proverbs and also Ecclesiastes, there is a connection made between wisdom and righteousness as well as wisdom and fear of the Lord. Because the world that we live in is God's world, then the best way to live is God's ways or right ways, or we would say righteous ways. And the fear of God includes both reverencing, respecting God, and taking him seriously, taking his word seriously, taking his commands seriously, and also humbling ourselves before his word so that we listen to him, that we listen to the turn left in a thousand feet. Take this road not that road. And, be, and um, the Bible is also clear that while the fear of the Lord helps us navigate in wisdom, there is also another force at work in the world, a force that is opposing God and opposing God's ways, and that force is sin. And often in Proverbs and also Ecclesiastes, sinful ways are referred to as folly or foolishness. 
Now, folly is never presented in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes as being morally neutral. It's never presented that way. So you'll never see righteous people depicted as being foolish, nor will you ever see in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes sinful people depicted as being wise. And that's because according to the Bible, folly is rooted in sin. Folly is rooted in sin. That's what the, the doctrine of depravity tells us. That God made all things, that God made the, the first people, he made the man Adam as the representative of the human race, and he told him, this is the way in which you are to walk. And to fear God would have been to reverence God, to take his word seriously, to take the consequences of disobedience seriously, and to take a posture of humility. I'm going to listen to God. He's God. I'm not. He knows more. But instead, what we see is that the man in particular, that's who the burden falls on, the man disregarded the word of the Lord, and this is folly. And he sinned, and that sin, that disobedience against God, is folly. And because this man is the representative of humanity, his guilt is inherited, and his folly is inherited by all of humanity. That's why we need a new representative, we need a new man to lead us out of our folly, that's Jesus. But because we've all inherited that folly, we see in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. It says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. You see, since we've inherited sin, what we've also inherited is folly. Folly and sin are connected. So parenting involves restraining our children from sin, restraining them from folly, and pointing them to Christ pointing them in the path of wisdom. Now, our text today has much to say about folly and about wisdom and comparing and contrasting them to one another in a variety of arenas in life. The first thing our text tells us is that wisdom is powerful. Wisdom is powerful. We are given the story of a city. It's not a great city. And it's a city that is not large in, in number. And so there aren't a lot of men in this city. There definitely aren't a lot of fighting men. And we're told that a great and powerful king comes against this city. They've locked up the, the gates and, and the, their uh, walls are surrounding the city. But this ruler has built up siege works. So they are trying to keep the people from escaping, and they are just waiting to overthrow the city. And things do not look well for this city. There's no human reason why they should have hope. And yet we're told that there was a poor wise man in the city. He was poor compared to this wealthy, powerful king. But he was wise. And even though the city didn't have a great standing army, and even though they didn't have a lot of numbers, they had something very valuable in the wisdom of this man. And we're not told what happened, 
But we are told that through his wisdom, the city was delivered. Now, a vanity is that the people of the city later forgot about this man, but they still benefited from his wisdom nonetheless. And so the moral of this story is found in the first half of verse 18. It says, wisdom is better than weapons of war. The king had a mighty standing army. The king had siege works surrounding the city, but the city had a wise man. And so wisdom is better than weapons of war. Because of the, the nature of wisdom, sometimes it might be compared to a chess game or to checkers or to some other kind of uh, strategy game. And the reason for that is chess and checkers and strategy games, they all involve calculating. They all involve calculating risk and reward and weighing actions before making them so that you make the best possible action. And there is some similarity between wisdom and, and various strategy games like that. But since true wisdom involves viewing life with a reference to God, then all calculating in true wisdom all weighing risk and reward should also have God in view. So approaching life with wisdom means asking ourselves questions like, what will most keep my heart from idols? What will most help me fight sin? What will most grow me in godliness? What will most maximize my satisfaction with Jesus, what will most deepen my level of contentment and thanksgiving? What will most store up for me treasure in heaven? What will most multiply the rewards and glory I will receive at the resurrection of the dead on the last day? These are calculations. These are weighing reward and risk. And since true wisdom is viewing life in reference of who God is and what he has told us, these are the kinds of questions we should be asking ourselves as we're navigating life and making decisions. Being able to think about life in this way and make decisions accordingly while loving others and pursuing peace with others is powerful. Wisdom is powerful. It's better than weapons of war. It's better than a nuclear arsenal or better than weapons of mass destruction. To be able to think about life through this lens and ask ourselves the right questions when making decisions gives a, per a person great power. But our text also tells us that folly is powerful too. The second half of verse 18 says, one sinner destroys much good. Are you familiar with the story of Achan in the Old Testament? We have this grand buildup, 
The people of Israel have been slaves in the land of Egypt for over 400 years, and then they finally are delivered from slavery, and they are promised a land flowing with milk and honey, but they disbelieve the promises of God, and so God curses them and says a whole generation, basically the decision-making adults, you are all going to die off. None of you will see the promised land. And then your children, they will inherit the blessing. And so that whole generation dies off. Moses dies. Joshua becomes the leader. Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River. They go into the promised land. They're supposed to drive out their enemies. They tackle the first great city that they come to on the other side of the Jordan. And God says, march around the city of Jericho seven times, seven days, blow the trumpet. They obey the word of the Lord, even though it doesn't seem to make sense. The walls crumble. They go in. They overtake the city. And God had told them, devote everything in the city. People, animals, everything, riches, wealth. Devote it to the Lord. Don't spare anything and don't keep anything for yourself. Devote it all to the Lord. This is the Lord's judgment. Devote it to the Lord. And so the people go in and apparently do what God had commanded. And then the next city that they come to, the city of Ai, is not nearly as large. And so they determine we don't have to send the whole army. We can send three, 4,000 men. They'll go up. They'll make, they'll make light work of this. And they go up against the city, and 30-some Israelites are killed. And the people retreat. And so now all the people of Israel, they are, they are crying. They're mourning what's going on. Oh, my goodness, we've suffered our first defeat. Now all of our enemies are going to be emboldened. They're going to come against us. Is the, lot, the Lord not with us? And, and Joshua is on his face, weeping before the Lord. And the Lord says, get up. You have devoted things among you. What? Somebody took something from the city of Jericho that belonged to the Lord. And so they cast lots. Twelve tribes of Israel. Which tribe? Okay, it's this particular tribe. All right, let's cast lots among the heads of families. Okay, it's this line. All right, let's cast lots. Okay, and they go, and finally they determine the Lord is the one who, who finds it out. And they determine, oh, it's Achan. And what did Achan do? Well, he took a bar of, of silver or gold, I can't remember, and he took a robe, he took a few things and he hid them underneath his tent. And they said, Achan, why would you sin against the Lord? And so Achan and his wife and his children and all of his animals were all stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. All these promises of God that had finally come to a climax and God was finally giving his people the victory that they promised. And the people are ecstatic. The Lord 
is our, is our champion. Look how the Lord is fighting the battles for us. And then 30-some people lose their lives. And Achan's wife and Achan's children and Achan himself all lose their lives because of one act of folly. One sinner destroys much good. Have you ever heard someone use the expression, the fly in the ointment? It's a way of saying the one thing that messes up the whole bunch. Well, it's found in our text today. Ecclesiastes 10.1 talks about this analogy. The perfumer's ointment, this very expensive, very precious um, lotion, if you will. And yet, one fly gets into it and dies and stinks. One very small, worthless thing ruins the whole batch. And we're told that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We see this again in the Old Testament in the life of a man named King Uzziah. He's one of Judah's future kings after Solomon. And, and you may not remember or be familiar with King Uzziah, but if you are, it's probably because you remember the vision that the prophet Isaiah had of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And he begins with saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne and his glory, his, his robe, the train of his robe filled the temple. God is sending a message to King or to Isaiah when there's great uncertainty and insecurity in the land, a message of God being seated on his throne and a reason for the people of God to have great certainty. But the reason why there was in uncertainty and insecurity is because Uzziah had been a great king. And for most of his rule, the Bible says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was king for 52 years. I mean, can you imagine an administration that lasts 52 years and that honors the Lord for the vast majority of it? Well, the Lord blessed that, and he blessed the people with prosperity. But we're told that at the end, toward the end of his rule, Uzziah, King Uzziah, decided to go into the temple one day, and, and they offered incense. If you, you may have seen pictures or a video, uh, this still happens in the Roman Catholic Church, where they'll have a censer full of, of incense, and that, that was a custom in the Old Testament. And so the priests, only the priests, were allowed to offer incense. But King Uzziah, he's ruled for over five decades. And he's done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And he's prospered. And he's had a good run. And the people have had a good run under his leadership. And so he decides, I'm going to offer some incense to the Lord today. And there's 70 or 90 priests, and they confront him. And they say, King Uzziah, this is not your job. You are walking outside of the commands of God. And he gets mad at them. Do you know who I am? And suddenly, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. If you become a leper, you, you, your death warrant is sealed. You, you cannot be among the people. You have a deadly contagious disease. 
And so King Uzziah, this great king, for 52 years spends the very, very final portion of his life in isolation. And he dies. Just one act of folly outweighs a lifetime of wisdom and honor. Not only do we have Uzziah, we have King Asa, another of these kings. He ruled for 41 years, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but at the very end of his rule, at the very end of his rule, he entered into a treaty with another nation instead of relying on God to fight their battles. God said, you should not have done that. For four decades, I have blessed you. Why would you not look to me? And so then he gets a disease in his feet. And the Bible says that he sought many doctors, but he did not seek the Lord. He did something foolish. The Lord rebuked him. He hardened his heart and he would not seek the Lord. Four decades of doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now we could say, man, there were like over 40 kings. If you go through and you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, there are over 40 kings. And a lot of these guys were wretches. I mean, uh, Manasseh sacrificing children to, to false gods. I mean, like Uzziah and Asa, they were better than others, no doubt, no doubt. Well, they were mostly good. I mean, 52 years, 41 years, majority of the time, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's also true. But when we read about the end of their lives, there's a little bit of a sinking. It's like, it's like the team that almost pulls off the upset, but they, they miss the last second shot and they lose the game. It's like, ah, what was it for? What did it, what did it matter? What good is it? There's a sinking feeling in your stomach, right? I mean, imagine if you heard about Billy Graham. Agree or disagree with some of Billy Graham's ministry practices, it's undeniable that God used Billy Graham to explain the simplicity of the gospel to tens of thousands, possibly even millions of people, and many people who were genuinely converted and lived godly lives pointed back to a moment of understanding and clarity regarding the gospel to a Billy Graham rally. Imagine this legacy of Billy Graham, but we found out, well, like, the last crusade that he went on, they took up an offering at this one place, and the regular counters weren't there, and so Billy Graham just put it in his briefcase, and he just decided, you know, I've done a lot of work for the Lord. One offering, it's okay. What's it going to matter? Imagine if you, if you found out a story like that happened. Well, it would really tarnish your perspective on the legacy of this man, right? Well, praise God that we know there's no story about that like Billy Graham. But you don't have to hunt very far to find real-life stories like that. They are out there. And our text today is very clear that just a little folly, just a few life decisions that are made without reference to God and his ways can be ruinous 
for our lives and our character and our legacy. And the more influence and the more responsibility and the more authority a person has, the more others are affected by their folly. So when folly finds a home with leaders and rulers, you don't have to observe much political activity to see how often that's the case. When that is the case, how awful is it for a people? The author of our text today says, Woe to you when rulers are like this, when your leaders are like this. And I believe that by and large, we as Americans could respond to the text, Woe is me. We have a lot of foolishness in the halls and the corridors of our state and federal buildings. We should pray for our leaders that God would rid them of folly so we don't reap the fruit of it. Throughout the passage, the writer seems to switch back and forth between warning of foolishness and foolish ways and commending wisdom and wise ways. And these things are all significant for our lives, but they are even more significant if we call ourselves Christians because you cannot be a representative of Christ, an ambassador of Christ, and live foolishly and walk in folly. If we are, we're a walking contradiction and we cast shade on all the things that we claim to be true of Christ. And so there are, there are four areas where we see this displayed very clearly in our text. The first of those is our ways. We're told that our ways reveal our hearts. Verse 2 of chapter 10 says, the heart of the wise inclines them to the right and the fool's heart to the left. Now this isn't a political statement about the right and the left. The right hand was associated with integrity and honor and blessing. The left hand was associated with deceit and theft and waywardness and wickedness. And so in verses 8 through 10, we see a few activities that are descriptive of a person's ways, which likewise distinguish whether or not someone is wise or if they are a fool. We see that there are some who dig pits only to fall in them. There are others who break through a wall only to bit, be bit by a serpent, a serpent. And both of these pictures are of someone who is trying to acquire something through unjust means. They're trying to trap and do harm to someone else. They're trying to break through a wall to take something that doesn't belong to them. And in both situations, they have it come back on themselves. We're, we're told about people who quarry stone and people who split logs. And, and either, either they're not cautious and careful and so they're endangered or this is a picture of very violent activity and it's saying that people who live violently will experience violence. And then we're told of someone who's working with dull iron. They're, they're trying to split wood with, with iron that's not dull or that is dull. And that's either a picture of someone who doesn't take time to make preparation or it's a picture of someone who won't listen. They keep doing the same thing even though it's not effective because they won't listen. Now, depending on the exact interpretation there may or may not be a clear distinction among these activities between 
sin, what is clearly sin, and what is simply carelessness. But these things, these ways, they mark a person. And so if we look at someone and we say, is this the kind of person who's going to go behind my back? Like the one who digs a pit or the one who tries to break through the wall? Is this the kind of person who's going to be reckless? Like the one who quarries stones and splits logs and gets hurt or hurts others? Is this the kind of person who doesn't give attention to detail and whose work isn't quality as a result, as in the case of the one who keeps using the dull tool? And you might say, well, I think this is a clear area of sin, or depending on how you interpret it, maybe it's just, maybe it's just not, not a good idea. But here's the question. If we were company owners and this person came to us for a job, would we want to hire them? Whether it's the interpretation that's clear sin or it's just that's a bad idea. And the answer is no, because their ways are reflective of their character. And if a person can't be trusted with a job, then what kind of credibility does that lend to their witness if they're professing to be a Christian and professing that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior? Does it make the claims of Jesus and the invitation to come follow him look winsome and desirable and appealing? No, it doesn't. A, way, a person's ways reflect them. And a foolish person walks in foolish ways. And it's unbecoming of a Christian. But a person's words also reflect them. Verse 3 of chapter 10, we're told that the fool lacks sense and tells everyone as they walk along the road that they're a fool. Now that seems a little strange to hear, but I don't think it's, it's literal. I think it's more figurative. It's not someone walking around saying, hey everybody, look at me, I'm a fool. But it's a person who by the things they say reveals their foolishness. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, it should be up on the screen. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. The things that the foolish person says doesn't do them any favors. Verse 12 says that the wise man's mouth gains him favor. But the fool's mouth consumes him. A foolish person talks a lot. A foolish person talks about other people, assuming it won't find its way back to them. A foolish person says things that give people cause for reservation and that <coughs> in the end causes trouble for themselves. Words are powerful. And words come out easy. How easy it is for us to vent and to complain, and to share a little information that we know about someone else that's true, but isn't particu particularly flattering of them. It's easy for us to do that. But the Bible tells us that the tongue, meaning our words, is a hard vessel to master. And yet, like a small spark, it can set on fire a great forest. And so this is the difference between a wise person and a foolish person, whether or not we can master our words, whether or not we can watch our mouths. We cannot be a witness for Christ 
and be marked by speech that does not honor Christ, whether it's cursing, gossip, or slander, or complaining. A third area that we see identified, distinguishing between wisdom and folly, is our work. In chapter 10, verse 18, we're told that a roof sinks and a house leaks due to laziness. And the condition worsens and the thing falls apart, not because it's unfixable, but because of laziness. Because of indolence, it says. In verse 6 of chapter 11, the author says, you're right, you don't know what will happen. You don't know what will work out. So work. Maybe it'll all work out. Don't do nothing. Don't be lazy. Now, I believe this applies to us in the realm of literal, physical work, but also in the realm of spiritual work, our work for the Lord. How many things, physically or materially and spiritually, go undone because of laziness? We just don't want to. We'd rather put it off. It's hard. It's time-consuming. It's not immediately gratifying. How, how many things are we reluctant to do or to pull the trigger on because we, it's just... We don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know if this will be a success or a failure. And so we don't do it. Our work affects our witness. In numerous places throughout the New Testament, we're told about the importance of hard work. Even the Apostle Paul draws attention to his work ethic as an example for others to follow. When I moved to Ellsbury, I met an individual. And they said, oh, buyers... I used to work with the buyers. Monty, that was my uncle. Now, my uncle Monty was very, very bright. He had a chemical engineering degree. He, he was just a sharp guy. And, uh, and, this, and this individual said, yeah, I used to work with your uncle at this plant. And we would look around and say, where's Monty? And he would have taken the, the ladder, the, the safety ladder, and he'd be up on top of the building praying instead of working. Now, if someone asked him, Monty, what are you doing? I'm sure he would have spoken with language about his exuberance for the Lord and his desire to commune with the Lord and fellowship with the Lord but my Uncle Monty was sinning against the Lord because he wasn't working when he was being paid to work. And people who didn't worship the Lord, who were working when they were being paid to work, noticed that the man who loved Jesus wasn't being honorable. And so our work ethic can can be becoming of our witness or it can turn people off to Christ. But in the way that laziness destroys, spiritual laziness also destroys. Spiritual laziness results in neglect of the means of grace. I'm not going to spend time with the Lord in prayer. I'm not going to spend time with the Lord in the word. I'm not going to spend time with the people of God in worship. This is hard. I don't feel like it. I'd rather do something else with my time. And it's the flesh. It's the flesh winning out. 
and it will destroy our lives, and it can destroy our homes, and it can destroy our church. Sometimes we hear said of someone, well, they're saved, they know the Lord, they're a Christian, but, you know, they just, they're just not walking with him right now. And that's a contradiction in terms. Someone who belongs to the Lord and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so therefore they are united with Christ, but they're just not walking with him. That's a contradiction in terms. Now, there is a real struggle that we all face with the flesh. No, our flesh does not want to walk with the Lord. But anytime we accept that not leaning in to spiritual things is actually going to be of a benefit, we are believing a lie. It is spiritual laziness. The, the flesh is winning out and we're believing a lie. A fourth area, a distinction between wisdom and folly is concerning wealth, specifically regard to honoring the Lord by sharing and investing rather than hoarding. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, it says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. The foolish person does two things. They, they won't invest for fear. They won't share for fear. The wise person pursues endeavors and gives to others and both reaps the benefit as well as the assurance that they'll be helped in their own time of need. Money is such a clear area of distinction between wisdom and folly. And we know this when we see people make exorbitant purchases. We see people living a lifestyle that's beyond their means. We, we know this. We see this. When we hear about people who saved and saved and saved and, and we find out when a need comes along that they were well supplied and well prepared, we know this. We know that wisdom and folly is displayed in the area of finances. And we also know that it's hard to be a good witness for Christ and make foolish decisions with how we deal with money. But let's not stop there. We need to realize that it's also hard to be a good witness when we neglect to invest our money in God's kingdom and share with others in need. If we live within our means, if we save and invest and plan and prepare for emergencies in the futures, in the future, but we're stingy, we're not rich toward God, and we don't help others, we may be wise in the eyes of the world with the way that we're handling our money, but we're still foolish in the eyes of the Lord. Missionary C.T. Studd once said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Living a wise life is of great importance, but not just for our own benefit, not just for our own comfort, not just so we can live our best life now. Living a wise life is of great importance because of the impact it has on our witness for Christ and the impact that God intends our witness to have on others. Wisdom is great power, but folly does too. And God's word to us today is be wise. And true wisdom is ultimately found in knowing Christ and living to make him known. Friend, is that true of you this morning?